Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. Jim, how real is the nuclear threat from Russia to uh, nuke the Ukrainians? Well, that's the problem. Nobody knows. And that's what Putin is counting on. Nothing like a little uncertainty uh, to weaken his enemies. But the uh, history of, uh, you know, like nuclear, uh, nuclear blackmail is relatively new. And uh, I doubt if anybody's going to give into it. Now, that doesn't mean he might not try something involving nuclear material. He's also uh, talked about a dirty bomb which is simply uh, a you know, normal explosive coated with nuclear materials that spreads the material around and basically contaminates a, a fairly large area for a long time. Uh, and it's expensive to clean up. So you know, that could be you know, his threat. But actually using nuclear weapons, uh, it's unlikely. I mean, we've threatened already that you know, retribution would be swift and, uh, you know, and, and widespread. And what, he's, what we may have been referring to, nobody's confirmed this, was 20, more than 20 years ago, U.S. Air Force proposed a, uh, a solution to that called SSBS, Simultaneous Strategic Bombing Strike, which then involved the, the relatively new, you know, widespread availability of uh, GPS-guided bombs and uh, in, in, in Con in in cooperation with uh, some troops put on the ground uh, to acquire, you know, uh, more precise locations of targets. Uh, this would definitely put a dent in the Russian, you know, nuclear response. And I'm not talking strategic, so to speak, but we're talking, you know, locally. Uh, Russia's a big place, and, and SBS on that scale is basically impractical. Maybe Putin is depending on that, but I doubt very much if he's uh, intent on uh, ordering a, uh, you know, strategic nuclear strike, because that would basically uh, result in the end of Russia. Um, and I think a lot of Russians know that. In fact, the problem Putin is having is he bet his career, as it were, on a rapid, you know, conquest of Ukraine. He had all his propaganda about there's really no Ukrainians, there are Russians who were led astray by NATO, and, and malign Western influences, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this simply uh, increased the resolve of the Ukrainians. Now, Putin, since he hasn't got soldiers, as it were, uh, reliable enough or effective enough uh, to, uh, to basically stop the uh, Ukrainian offensive, which started, you know, four, uh, four, three months ago, um, and basically shows every uh, possibility of uh, overrunning uh, all the Russian occupied pocket, occupied territory uh, in Ukraine and expelling the Russians. Now, Putin, you know, swears that he will not give up. He will simply, you know, redouble his efforts. But his support inside of Russia is rapidly ev ev you know, eroding. And he realizes that if he ultimately does lose, he's now, you know, committed what, uh, what the UN is calling war crimes. You know, his attacks on uh, Ukrainian civilians and civilian infrastructure. Uh, that is definitely a no-no. 
and that was all on him because he ordered it. Um, so, you know, he probably would not be able to order a nuclear strike because it's alienated too many senior people in the government as well as the military. And he sees that, you know, support he does have eroding day by day. So it, I think it's past the point where he could take a chance and get away with it. But, you know, he's the loose wheel, so to speak, uh, in this whole, you know, machinery of keeping the nuclear peace, as it were. Austin, so what about the loose will? Uh, let me take it from a different tack, uh, Dan. Uh, less, a slightly different uh, uh, tack. Putin's been desperate since about three weeks into the war. Uh, I think he was, uh, it took him that long to realize that his special operation had really flopped in the first 24 to 48 hours of, uh, uh, of the invasion. Uh, special operation. Heck, it was a it was a strike really at uh, Kiev to try to force uh, Zelensky to flee or or kill him, and then he was counting on what now is clearly uh, politically corrupted, if not uh, monetarily corrupted. Uh, intelligence that uh, said that the Ukrainians uh, wanted to be Russians. Uh, just take a look at uh, the nation in arms. They, anything but. Many of the Russian speakers, <clears throat> ethnic Russians who live in Ukraine, didn't want to have anything to do with a Russia run by uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, the oligarchs. So the one thing, and here's, to get back to nukes, the one advantage in a war of attrition that has resulted, even though in the last, what, Jim, uh, six to eight weeks, we've seen a war of maneuver on the part of, of, of the U, uh, Ukrainians, a war of calculated, calculated maneuver, is uh, <clears throat> he's got nukes. The irony there is Ukraine traded in its nukes in 1994 with that Budapest Accord. And for the an absolute ironclad guarantee of its territorial territorial integrity from the Kremlin, and uh, that was supposedly backed up by the United States and the United Kingdom. Well, you can see how ironclad uh, that uh, agreement was. You know, when you have a dictator motivated by uh, really a, a golden age dream of Russian imperialism as uh, one of his latest statements. And again, I, this will lead back to nukes is he says, our ideology is Russian victory. Well, now I'll, I'll, that is so tribal. <laughs> it's been done before. You can peel a lot of things that German Nazis and Italian fascists said <clears throat> in the 1930s that essentially say the same thing. So uh, he's, Putin's another nationalist socialist is what he uh, amounts to. But he does have the nukes. Ukraine doesn't. Ukraine's not part of, of, of NATO. NATO Article 5 uh, says that you violate the geographic borders of a NATO nation. <clears throat> You're at war with every other member of NATO. And Several members of NATO, France, Great Britain, the United States, have uh, nuclear weapons. So there's a nuclear umbrella over uh, NATO nations. That's uh, at least at the uh, political, diplomatic, uh, let's call it the 
perceptual level, <clears throat> you've got uh, nuke on nuke. Now, is one nuke a very bad day? Uh, it's a very dangerous day. Uh, quick sidebar, Jim and I have talked about this before, but even in the 1970s, United States had very small yield nuclear weapons that really didn't leave much radiation. Much. They were tactical, uh, delivered by uh, tube artillery pieces or, or uh, short-range uh, short ballistic, uh, ballistic missiles. Um, much cleaner than what the, uh, the uh, Russians had the, the, in terms of the, of the radiation signature. Uh, theoretically, they could be used uh, and uh, without uh, a massive radiation hazard. But you use anything larger, and I'm talking, uh, and also uh, uh, dirtier. Uh, I know what U.S. and British uh, weapons uh, weapons were like as they evolved through the 70s and 80s. It was to where they were. There was a less. Again, we're talking about very small yield nuclear weapons, less of a, of a radiation hazard. The uh, those might be usable without uh, Armageddon. The deal is, is the perception in, and here I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm making a, a big statement, but I, every day I read through statements from uh, NATO, uh, uh, NATO headquarters, but also of NATO nations, is that every single one of them, with a perhaps Erdogan's Turkey being the exception, but I, I say perhaps, uh, uh, say that, you know, the, believe the war in Ukraine, that Ukraine is fighting a war for the rest of Europe to stop a malevolent, uh, malign, uh, and ex expansionist uh, dictatorship. And they've got a good job of doing it. And as Jim's already talked about the dictator, uh, Putin, he's, uh, <clears throat> he really is in a very, very desperate situation. More and more talk all the time of, of oligarchs moving against him, of the military moving against him, because he has hurt Russia. Now, they've damaged Ukrainian infrastructure, uh, however how many billions it takes to re rebuild it. But they haven't gained anything. They've lost an army. So what's he got? The choice is that, well, one of the first things I saw somebody uh, discussing, and I don't know if it came from the, the Kremlin, is that there was going to be a demonstration nuke set off somewhere over the Black Sea. It's bad. <laughs> Black Sea Basin. That's going to tick off uh, Turkey, Georgia, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, as well as Ukraine. And... Uh, Three of those nations are NATO nations. So I say that's off the table. And then they were gonna, there was going to be a dirty bomb that the Ukrainians were going to set off that would justify a Russian tactical nuclear strikes. Hmm. Okay. But then that sets off. It, it, it puts a marker down, and you are in a position. Russia's put in a position where uh, a justified counterstrike by NATO, yes. I believe so. And I think that's the calculation in the Kremlin as well. That has to be delivered in, in the same way that Trump told Kim Jong-un, do you want 
condos or craters. <laughs> you can't have both. And uh, that's I'm I'm uh, paraphrasing what President Trump said, but with, speaking with clarity, is you, you've got an oppor- uh, opportunity uh, to cooperate, or but if you go nuclear, you're dead. You're, it's, you don't have condos. You have you have craters, which gets back to where Jim opened up with the uh, simultaneous strategic uh, bombing strike. Uh, we've improved on that. Because the initial essay Jim had on the Upwork strategy page dates from uh, 2001, I think. Uh, and it was describing it using JDAMs as, as uh, joint direct attack munitions uh, and <clears throat> uh, missiles support and primarily relying on uh, delivery by uh, U.S. Air Force uh, strategic bombers. Well, <clears throat> Always in the concept there was including cruise missiles, and I, I can speak <coughs> from a, a, a scenario that uh, uh, I worked with in uh, uh, Office of Strategic Assessment, even uh, intermediate uh, uh, range uh, ballistic missiles uh, carrying conventional warheads or multiple conventional warheads uh, and the like. And you're trying to time it so all of the rounds, all of the bombs, all of the munitions arrive, as Jim said, uh, on targeted areas at the same time. Uh, for the reason that you, you catch my surprise, you did. De- <laughs> if you don't decapitate, and, and I'm talking really to, about uh, striking a military targets, it's an attempt to uh, decapitate uh, the militaries. Uh, Long-range strike uh, uh, capability, not th- not their strategic nuclear weapons, but you know, like uh, strategic bombers and uh, uh, major uh, major depots, uh, arms and munitions depots. What it is is taking the uh, army's uh, tactical art uh, concept, tactical slash operational of time on target up to a. a, a uh, strategic level that time on target was developed by a, a bunch of army majors and captains at Fort Sell in the late 20s and early 30s. And essentially, it was taking advantage of the radio to connect all the uh, tube artillery pieces that were within range of a uh, particular target. They also had elaborate firing tables. Remember, they, they did this with analog devices and uh, slide rules and uh, <clears throat> manual calculation to figure out how the firing sequence so that all the rounds of uh, up to, let's say, 10 battalions, that's 180 guns, land on a target at once. And you get not only the uh, firepower, uh, uh, explosive power, but you you get a seismic uh, uh, shock as well. Uh, And that uh, refined and started using it successfully in... uh, I think late 42, but definitely 43 uh, in uh, in Italy, which is where it picked up the name uh, uh, time on uh, time on target. The same concept is Im- implicit. The, the, the central concept is implicit in simultaneous strategic bombing strike. The the, the working it out in a specific operation though requires on cruise missiles and all the other missiles coming in and you want enough standoff so that your 
munitions. Uh, don't commit fratricide, much less uh, your munitions uh, knock down uh, uh, man platforms. The addition of drones and loitering munitions make the, the, the concept more credible. But you've got to have great intelligence and you've got to have, uh, again, practiced it so, so that you, you can execute it. The result is uh, nuclear effects uh, using con conventional mun munitions. And even though I've been a bit long-winded about it, this is what <laughs> the Russian military needs to know from uh, NATO, uh, from the U.S. military, as well as you guys do this. This is, a, this is something you could face without us using nuclear weapons. Question is, do we do it? We have no uh, uh, treaty commitment to Ukraine. We may have a monetary and moral or a moral commitment uh, at this at this point, but we don't have a treaty commitment. That said, the use of a nuclear weapon in Europe, even on Russian soil, well, that is another possibility. Uh, Putin setting off a nuclear device inside Russia. He's already destroying Russia. I guess uh, that might be the final straw for the, the oligarchs of the armies setting off a nuclear uh, weapon in, in Russian territory. But uh, avoid it. Uh, avoid doing it. Don't go there. And uh, uh, the recommendation would be uh, that uh, Russia get into serious negotiations with uh, Ukraine about how Russia is going to withdraw from uh, occupied territories. Jim, does the Russian military have the will to follow Putin's order to launch nuclear weapons? Well, he thought he did, and it, I think early on he did, but his uh, support in the military has been rapidly declining. And I suspect at this point, I mean, again, judging from the uh, the uh, Russian media, which we have access to, obviously, uh, the uh, you know the the enthusiasm, as it were, the the willingness to continue this war, is rapidly you know declining, and this is basically making Putin nervous because he realizes that uh, if if he hits the point of no return, which is rapidly approaching in Ukraine, uh, he's dead, literally. Uh, you know, if he's out of power, he's a wanted war criminal. Uh, and, and as Austin pointed out, Russia's economy has taken severe damage. And the only way they can basically uh, recover from that is to get free of the sanctions and uh, be free to, uh, to basically rebuild their economy. They can't do that by themselves. They have no allies other than, say, Iran, <laughs> which is similar to Russia, but they haven't got their nukes yet. Uh, meanwhile, North Korea had uh, earlier uh, said they've got a new policy. Uh, they won't wait to be attacked with nuclear weapons. They'll use their nuclear weapons first if they think they're in danger of, uh, you know, uh, having uh, having a massive attack, whether it's conventional or, or whatever. Uh, but Kim Jong Un, in the, uh, the third member, the third uh, um, uh, generation of the Kim dynasty is also worried about, you know, uh, surviving because, again, uh, North Korea is rapidly, you know, declining economically. Uh, he's put a lot of the, the money that he could have used for the, you know, the public welfare into nuclear and missile, nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. 
and it's really unclear uh, if he has a, a useful, you know, uh, uh, strategic nuclear weapon yet, uh, because the, the tests they've conducted so far have not really produced a, a how should I put it, a usable, you know, strategic weapon, and he hasn't, as far as anyone can tell, uh, engineered any of the existing nukes to uh, to reliably work inside a, a, a you know a ballistic missile. He hasn't tested that yet. If he has, and if he tests it, he ba- and it fails, he's in big trouble, because then we know the emperor is indeed naked. He has no clothes. Uh, so you've got you basically got two you know desperate. Well, I, the Iranians make it three, because the Iranians are facing nationwide you know demonstrations been going on for seven weeks now, with no sign of abating. And they are asking for the overthrow of the uh, of the you know the uh, uh, religious dictatorship that's ruled uh, Iran since the 1980s, and a lot of Iranians are calling for the end of Islam in um, in uh, in Iran because it's basically uh, nothing but you know harm to the country. So you know we're we're facing a a, a crisis on three fronts, and I think Putin is basically maneuvered himself into the weakest position of the three, uh, followed by, you know, uh, Iran and, of course, uh, North Korea. They, <laughs> they're very fanatical, but they may just starve themselves to death because it's reached a point where even the military isn't getting enough, you know, food. And, uh, you know, the, uh, you, get, you get drafted for six, at least six years in North Korea. And a lot of these guys, they thought, well, if I stay in the army, you know, don't try and run away or whatever. At least I'll have a, a, a three meals a day. Well, now they're getting two, maybe one meal. So, you know, uh, you can run this racket, so to speak, only for so long before you run out of uh, capabilities and run out of options. And the, the gamble is, will Putin have enough, you know, clout, as it were, within the military to actually use a nuke, uh, you know, before his, uh, how should I put it, his power declines below the threshold of control. And uh, your foreign assessments are that, you know, he is already beyond, you know, below that threshold. And he's now scrambling for some way to intimidate, you know, Ukraine and the West into just giving him what he wants uh, without resorting to nukes. And that's not going to work because, again, the new NATO countries, the ones that joined after 1991, you know, especially Poland, uh, they remember centuries of Russian aggression. And the whole point for joining NATO was to protect themselves against Russia. Russia has been, you know, the, the, the primary reason for NATO in the first place, you know, uh, keeping the Russians out uh, during the Cold War and now keeping the, the Russians from trying to, you know, reconquer Ukraine. Of course, they, they have their eyes, their, the maps they've shown indicate, you know, large portions of Poland would be reintegrated into the Russian Empire. That's not going to happen. Uh, the Russians don't want it. They don't want to, willing to pay the price. They've already been exposed to how expensive it can be. I mean, the economy is a mess. Uh, you know, unemployment is skyrocketing. Uh, inflation is going up. Uh, you know, it, it's basically on a death spiral. And uh, as Austin points out, a lot of the oligarchs, you know, the, the wealthiest uh, Russians and a lot of senior military people realize that this is a death trip if they keep it up. So. I think we'll see the uh, I think we'll see the finale of this, you know, uh, definitely before the end of the year, because by then uh, the, um, the Ukrainians, by the way, the Ukrainian military advantage 
is that in the beginning, they used basically the militia, the volunteers equipped with uh, NATO uh, anti-tank weapons, which nobody realized how effective they were against uh, Russian tanks, which had a serious flaw in their design with their autoloader. It made them all, you know, basically uh, vulnerable. Any hit in the turret blew the whole thing up. So they didn't have damaged tanks. They had lost tanks, and, and the three-man crew was gone with it. And the Russian uh, soldiers, you know, quickly picked up on that. And they said, oh, my God, this is suicide. Meanwhile, the Ukrainians have been training troops. And when they started their offensive, their troops were trained, disciplined. They were well-equipped. Sure, they were using Russian tanks. But the Russians still didn't have top attack, you know, ATGMs, missiles, you know, to, to take advantage of the flaw in the, uh, in the, in the Russian-designed tanks. Also, the Ukrainians are aware of the fact that you can somehow, somewhat mitigate that flaw by, uh, you know, uh, modifying the use of the autoloader to keep the amount of ammunition in the turret, uh, you know, available for an explosion uh, to a minimum. But anyway, because they were better trained and better organized and better led and better motivated, uh, they've just been running, you know, the uh, the Russians out. And and uh, and I think, you know, he, uh, Putin realizes that he has no army anymore. Uh, he cannot resist. I mean, he can't even defend Russia, you know, with the with the damage that's been done. I mean, he's they've admitted the Ukrainians have claimed and, and their claims tend out to be true. They've lost, you know, uh, you know, about 96,000 dead. And and this news eventually got back to all the Russians, despite the Russian media being state controlled, you know, saying otherwise. And so many Russians, Russian families, have a you know a son or a, a brother, whatever, husband in this case with the with the mobilization, who didn't come back, was mobilized, sent off to uh, Ukraine with no training, very little equipment, and what have you, because Russia is out of that stuff, and just getting killed. And and there have been uh, videos appearing recently. Of, uh, of Russian troops, basically one of their guys standing up and, and saying and saying to a, a large number of fellow conscripts or mobilization troops, these are older guys, that they're just using us for cannon fodder, we're just here to get killed. And then you hear the, all these guys cheering. So I doubt if that was just some sort of fabrication to, <laughs> to lull the, uh, the West into a, a, you know, a, a state of, oh, confidence, because on the battlefield, the Ukrainians are proving it. There's just nothing that can stop them. And uh, I think the Russians, you know, let's face it, you know, they uh, for a while they, they went along with Putin because he was he was the boss and he had the power to basically imprison or, you know, murder. And he hasn't got that much power anymore. Uh, he can issue orders and they just aren't followed. So there we go. So, you know, it, it should be over by the end of the year. And if there's going to be any nuclear danger, it'll start dissipating rapidly you know, in the next few weeks. That's our prediction. Austin, do you have anything to add to close no, this out? I'd, I'd go with that. There was one other thing that I thought might be worth uh, mentioning is flip it around and, and you're in the Russian military and Putin tells you to hit a target. In Ukraine, what target do you choose? If, you're, if you are really going to do it, what do you target? Do you target uh, Kharkov, uh, Kiev, uh, using uh, Russian <laughs> names for them, do you really target them? 
especially when you know the the the, the Kharkov is a, a, a substantial number of ethnic Russians live there. Uh, are you going to do that? Uh, are you going to put it uh, uh, you know, near the Polish border? What happens if you miss the Polish border and actually hit, I mean, the Ukraine and hit inside Poland? Uh, now you've, now you're at war uh, with NATO. I'm just, look, I'm just, that has something that a responsible, responsible military organization, military command, would turn around and tell Vlad, hey, listen, what is it do you want us to hit? And with how large, it, it, I'm, Dan, that's one another reason I don't think they're going to do it. They just want to use, um, Putin just wants the intimidation factor of it. That's, yeah, it puts them in a huge bind because they're going to kill a lot. They've already killed a lot of Russians, but that, if, if they use a nuke or nukes, they're going to end up killing a lot more Russians and possibly... There are scenarios for it, you know, the dissolution of Russia as we currently know it. So uh, I think they'll stay away from it. I would say, Jim, I I see Putin trying to hang on into spring of next year. But, uh, you know, winter's an enemy for everybody <laughs> in Russia and Ukraine. So uh, it, may, it may be the time that the Russian army just calls the war off because of the uh, suffering that's going to occur, at least in the field, uh, uh, during the winter. Well, that's one, that's, that's one last thing to mention. The Ukrainians are prepared for winter warfare. What would, what would slow them down would be the mud season, or Batista, which occurs in the spring. That hurt the Russians during the, the initial you know, invasion. Once the ground turned to mud, which it does for a few weeks or a month, uh, nobody has much mobility. But on the, in the, during the cold weather, and it's it's uh, it's cold, but it's not as you know as 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 bad down in Ukraine because it's closer to the uh, you know the uh, the Black Sea. Right. Uh, they have the clothing, they have the experience, they have the trained troops. They will take advantage of the cold weather. So yeah, Putin might try to hang on to the spring and, and hope the Rapatista saved them as it did you know <laughs> during World War Two, but this isn't World War Two. And they're playing the Nazis. So. Look, I, I'm, a, I'm aware of all the cold weather e equipment that uh, NATO nations have been sending to Ukraine. I meant to start reading about it, what, three months ago? <clears throat> and so that I think they have, let's say, a thermal advantage. I'll just come up with that. A, ther <laughs> a thermal advantage the Ukrainians do because, all right, we'll get ready. And, again, this is based on 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 media <laughs> Uh, but also, I've seen a lot, uh, and through the British press mostly, of interviews with the captured Russians, and they don't even have basic summer equipment. It's much less winter. I'll just leave it at that because uh, that, that it's going to be hard on them. It's going to be hard. Okay, we'll talk to you gentlemen next time. Take Bye. care. Bye.